This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Welcome to Real Talk. We've got a great show for you in store in just a moment. We're going to head over to Damascus, Syria. That's where uh, Ray Elisa Schmidt-Teigen is, a real talker who's over there working, uh, doing humanitarian work in what she has described as a crisis upon a crisis. Of course, uh, Syria and Turkey both just walloped by an earthquake, a series of quakes uh, that, of course, left uh, a countless. I mean, it's it's unimaginable devastation over there. And uh, when it comes to lives lost, when it comes to injuries, missing persons and, of course, uh, the uh, devastated infrastructure as well. Uh, Ray Elisa and her team at MedAir have been working on the Syrian side of that border, doing what they can. You may remember she debuted on Real Talk last year, talking about some of the work they were doing in Syria unrelated to quakes, uh, hence the reference to crisis upon crisis. We're going to get a perspective check from her coming up in just a moment. Plus, we'll turn our attention to Canadian politics. Yesterday, conservative leader Pierre Polyev says, quite frankly, he's not going to do anything. Uh, about uh, three of his MPs that met with, that dined with a far-right German politician. Uh, We're talking about Christine Anderson from Germany's far-right Alternative for Germany party. Uh, Pierre telling uh, reporters yesterday, Mr. Polyev, that is, that uh, he has no plans to remove these MPs from his caucus. Uh, We're talking about former leadership candidate Dr. Leslin Lewis, Dean Allison, and Colin Carey. Uh, And Polyev turning the attention back on the prime minister, In an old criticism that, uh, in my mind, kind of still rings true and is a valid point, but also, in my mind, doesn't work in this instance. And so I want to put it to you. That's coming up a little bit later in the show. And some myth-busting. Johnny, we pushed out a link uh, a few days ago when a BC company, this is a company out of Langley, BC, Adaster Holdings, uh, announced that they had received, uh, did you see this, the green light from Health Canada to manufacture... Yeah. And sell cocaine. I think we got it. We were at a lunch when we got the <laughs> alert on our phones. We were like, "Is this real?" And like, we had to fact check it. Yeah, it's, how can the, like how can this be real? Yeah, but a lot of people, including BC's premier David Eby, uh, appeared to be kind of taken aback by it. The prime minister uh, went on the record and 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 you know basically said, "My position is." I'm paraphrasing. Said like, "My position's the same as Premier Eby. I'm a little bit gobsmacked about this." But everybody thought that, well, maybe there is a chance that this is true, because as you know, BC right now, in the midst of a pilot project, it's had it's seen relaxations from the feds. And so BC is 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 in, a, in the midst of a pilot project that decriminalizes the so-called hard drugs. And so folks, folks thought, well, well, maybe maybe this actually is true. Maybe Adastra Holdings is is on to something, becoming the first retailer in Canada, the first manufacturer and vendor, essentially, of of well, legal blow, right? And so people are trying to make sense of this. Like people are going, so, can I can I literally show up at a at a shop, like a pot shop or yeah. a corner store and buy Coke? But explain it though. They're on like a three year kind of trial. I so guess. BC has 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 the federal laws relaxed and they're experimenting. Well, I shouldn't say experiment. Yeah, I mean that is what a pilot project is. But but the idea is 
advocates for harm reduction will tell you that if you decriminalize all drugs, basically the legal system perpetuates a lot of these problems. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about people on the, on the streets, the small level users. We're not talking about drug traffickers. We're not talking about people that are bringing in, you know, pounds and bricks of fentanyl from Eastern markets into Canada. We're not talking about organized crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're talking about a lot of times people that will be busted with, with a gram or two of, of heroin or cocaine or, or whatever it is sure. in their pockets they're arrested by police they're processed they're put back in jail it's just this cycle mm-hmm. and the cycle appears to have no end and so you know harm reduction advocates in bc have worked hard uh to receive you know the the green light on this pilot project to try to decriminalize drugs and see what happens and, and of course the feds will take a look at this at the end of it at the yeah. end of the few years and say well how did it work how did it go and then apply the learnings to ideally future drug policy well, what's, what's your what's your opinion just quickly, uh, on we, I mean, I you know, it. I mean, gosh, I want to have informed opinions when I have strong opinions. Sure. You know, it's it's people that I trust that, that, that have informed takes on this, that have lived experience working in harm reduction will argue that this is important. Mm-hmm. I also know that it's a tough political sale. Of course. You know, for a federal government to start talking about decriminalizing hard drugs, then you, you mm-hmm. think of what the attack ads might look like. And people on the flip side will argue and be quite right about it. And they'll say, well, well, innovative or effective policy or initiatives oftentimes take courage. You have to be willing to catch a little flack. You have to be willing to answer the objections. Um, I'm certainly open to the idea, but I can understand how critics of this would say, I mean, I can hear the voiceover on the ad right now. Justin Trudeau wants your kid <laughs> to be able to buy heroin at Circle K. Yeah. And then, you know, people will sort of get, you know, so facts matter in this circumstance. And, and the fact is, with regards to this story out of B.C. at Astro Holdings, oh, by the way, maybe crazy like foxes, their stock price jumped. Uh, after that announcement, the stock price rose sharply from 75 cents Thursday morning of last week to a dollar 60 by 1030 in the morning Friday. That's its highest peak since October of three years ago. So the stock price more than doubling. Uh, but it turns out that th- this is not true. Uh, cocaine, as you know, has some legal uses like topical anesthetic to prevent excess bleeding uh, for ENTs like uh, ear, uh, nose and throat surgeries in particular mm-hmm. as authorized by Health Canada. But selling, manufacturing or trafficking cocaine and other illicit <laughs> drugs does remain illegal. It's a, it's a hot button issue. But I think like, I think it's like when uh, cannabis was legalized here too. everyone was like, everyone's going to be on pot. Yeah. And we know that the legal use of cannabis, I'm looking at it right now, raised about 66% in the fourth quarter of 2021. That's the latest stats we have. But I mean, I does that mean, mean more people that, are though. using cannabis or they're just now they get to use it legally? I don't know people yeah. who have... Like when Started they say using legal cannabis. use rose, yeah. what are they saying by that? Exactly. Yeah, you're quite like, are they 66%. talking about new recruits, so I to speak? I don't that think weren't so. using cannabis before that are now. Or are they talking about people that transitioned from the black market to mm-hmm. the legal market? Well, the same people I know who use cannabis before it was legalized are using it now. And I don't know many people who all of a sudden started using cannabis simply because it was available. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bradley Martin on our live chat um, guy knows a thing or two about health policy says 
you know, legal or decriminalized uh, drugs, safe supply, so to speak, says cuts down on poisoned drugs. Absolutely 100% true. Lou says, look at Portugal. I mean, Lou's right. Portugal's a fascinating model. The thing about the Portuguese model in decriminalizing, decriminalizing, I'm calling them hard drugs. I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're basically everything that's not pot or hash mm-hmm. mushrooms you know and pot hash mushrooms is kind of like what do you want to call it like the organics the i was you just know, gonna say anything that's you know that grows still I mean, in its hash uh, is still processed but people know what form. we mean people know <laughs> what we mean um and lose rights says look at portugal the way they took on addiction and hard drugs and and portuguese uh, that portuguese model has been cited around the world um you know sharon says yeah like no more dirty drugs killing people obviously I, I people get to use too. it legally um i don't think that uh I don't think uh, I don't think that there's been a whole bunch of people that have tried cannabis now that it's legal. No, and weren't trying it before. And I don't think everyone's if this is true and if it's going to happen are going to all of a sudden become addicted to cocaine. But if somebody's going to do cocaine, I, I always advocate for like people are like, don't let the government control drugs. I would rather do a drug and I probably wouldn't do cocaine if it was legalized. I wouldn't just pick up the habit. But if I was going to do it, I would rather have it from you know someone who made it safely 100 percent horrible fentanyl laced drugs on the street that are killing people you never know what your cocaine is cut with on the street and and yeah. I'm, not, I'm i can't say that i'm like talking from a wealth of personal experience it's interesting what what this does to the conversation around stigma as well right like you you look at when when cannabis was decriminalized it's hard to believe like five years ago now it's been a long Canada, time it's been a long yeah. time right um but but it's now legal and you do see i mean i don't see a whole bunch of people you know at, at, at you know corporate christmas parties and that like outside in a circle smoke high school smoke pit style no. uh, which is a dated reference i don't think high school kids smoke anymore i think they mm-hmm. just vape but, but but is there vape circles at high schools now <laughs> maybe but i don't see a lot of I'm people sure like, there are. like smoking joints maybe a few mm-hmm. but i see a lot of people more like with gummies and like mm-hmm. little weed cookies and things like that and i do think that we're getting past that stigma as a society 100% i wonder if it would be a different no i don't wonder it would be a different story you know let's say we're entertaining here in the real talk studio and somebody <laughs> careful pulls, here um, somebody <laughs> pulls on this beautiful urban timber white oak table and somebody, you know, pulls out an eight ball and starts <laughs> chopping up lines on the table, but it's legal. Yeah. Can you see people at our at our real talk holiday housewarming, you know, walking up and blowing rails off the table in front of other people if like it's that. legal? I don't think so at the all. The same way as when cannabis was legal. It's not like people were all of a sudden walking. I, I didn't smell more marijuana walking Bomb down rips. the street. It's the same amount. But I think it's like anything like you make something illegal, automatically crime increases the rate of people overdosing it it's like prohibition back in the day what happened when alcohol was illegal it went underground more people drank more people there were speakeasies all these things so yeah I, i'm always on the side of i think i think the government should just take over all of it and it should be you know go in show your id recreationally use drugs if you want to and be responsible about it and and let's have other other places people can go for addiction services and stuff like that. Let's put money into that as well. Yeah. But like pushing it onto the street and ma- and criminalizing everything, it, we just see that it doesn't work. People get hurt. People go to jail. People die. I don't want to be cynical. I appreciate your comments. 
I think that you and I would both acknowledge that even with legal cannabis, and I'm an investor in a legal cannabis company. Check out Bo- Joy Botanicals wherever you can find it. <laughs> Joi, <laughs> Purple Punch Mints. Um, but uh, but but you would be foolish. You would be only fooling yourself if you tried to claim that the legal cannabis market has killed the black and gray markets. It of has cannabis not at all. No. Not at all. No. And that's a huge part of the problem, as a matter of fact. So with something like, I mean, if you were to decriminalize all drugs or, I mean, and, and by the way, that's just decriminalizing. That's not talking about safe supply. These are all different steps. Mm-hmm. But in a world where legal, uh, you know, properly manufactured, regulated and, and, and taxed and sold cocaine, as an example, would become available to people, you know, you, you, you just have to, to wonder if it would make a dent in the black market it would be probably like here's just some of the reasons i think that some of the points that we've learned from cannabis from that cannabis experiment uh number one it's more expensive when it's taxed and regulated and sold in a store than it is on the street so a lot of Mm -hmm. people for whom cost is an issue or there are other issues that come into play they're still getting it on the street Mm -hmm. and i think like if you were to be able to buy properly manufactured regulated taxed and sold cocaine legally mm-hmm. you would still have some marginalized populations lower income populations uh, homeless populations etc mm-hmm. um still getting their cocaine off the street still unsure of whether or not it was going to of course kill them with the next use right? and I'll, I'll just say one last thing because we want to get our guests yeah. in. but like my wife for example she uses cannabis uh, for pain management she has a bad knee she uses cbd for anxiety and stuff like that she even uses it to you know go to work yeah. she doesn't do a job where she's operating like heavy machinery something yeah. she's in retail but uh, like for her, I don't want her to go on the street. I don't want her to call someone and meet someone in a car late at night no or way. whatever. And I'm not trying to paint some some scary picture of drug dealers or whatever. I know there's also like nice people who provide people with this stuff. But like I'm just looking now, there's been a, a almost 80% decrease in uh, cannabis-related offenses since the legalization of cannabis in Canada. Now, is that because we're just not charging as many people because it's legal? I don't care. That that sounds like a good thing to me. Less people in jail, less people going to jail for silly things, I think, like my wife who would use cannabis for pain management yeah. and su- such like that. So I think if you spread that out to all the other drugs, I can't see it hurting. I can only see it being better. Tony uh, in our live chat says North America really loves to change its view when it comes to drugs, need to be more open uh, so that we can take the business out of the hands of criminals. Tony, I agree with you. Uh, Tracy says lace drugs has been an issue for a quarter century in Alberta and it likely gets worse every year. You know, perhaps we could do more testing. That's something my brother and his colleagues do at Insight in Vancouver. They'll test drugs for people. That's part of the harm reduction strategy for for, you know, at Insight in Vancouver and at harm reduction centers. A lot of them in Alberta, the ones that are still open, the ones that still have funding anyway, um, they're able to at least test the drugs. Now, here's the power of addiction. Um, and I and I don't want to get too far down this. Like, I don't want to get too out of my lane and talking like an authority on this. But what my brother tells me is the real heartbreak, the real shocker is that some people, some people who use drugs will have those drugs tested that it'll turn up, uh, you know, overloaded with something that could be a real problem, fentanyl or what have you, car fentanyl, and they'll still use. Uh, but they're using at least under the supervision of harm reduction workers. And some of these overdoses are obviously reversed. All of them. No one's died in a in a supervised consumption center. Uh, or a service in uh, Canada ever. No one's ever died 
and thousands and thousands wow. of overdoses have been reversed. I understand I some that. people. I get this. I get this uh, that, that some people will say, well, look at this. And I've heard stories from firefighters. They'll show up on scene. They'll administer naloxone. Someone's experiencing drug poisoning or an overdose. They'll administer naloxone. The person will come back dramatically. <gasps> they come back. And then they're using five minutes later. Mm-hmm. And I've heard a story of one fire captain in particular that grabbed a, a woman by the shoulders and just yelled at her out of frustration. Stop using drugs. And you understand the frustration of the first responders. You also understand that it's probably a little bit more complex, mm-hmm. a little bit more deeply seated than her never being yelled at before. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so we've got to find a solution. I appreciate the comments here in the live chat. This is why you got to watch Real Talk Live so you can participate in this conversation. Dwayne says, I saw Justin Trudeau speak once. He said he had no plans to legalize other drugs. Yeah, you know, that's a politician being a politician. You never know, right? Never know. Others say, you know, legalization intended as a strategy to keep cannabis clean, to cut down on lacing. Lorne points out mushroom microdosing is coming, talking about psilocybin. This flew under the radar. We're working on a story for Real Talk. We're Mm -hmm. giving up our scoop right now. Alberta recently became the first jurisdiction in the world. Quietly. Quietly. A couple of months ago, Alberta became the first jurisdiction in the world where therapists, mental health therapists, can now prescribe psilocybins, like Mm -hmm. mushrooms, and ketamine. Mm -hmm. And so this is a story that we're working on. Lawrence, absolutely right. Mental health counseling and that whole field of mental health uh, and, and services uh, is about to see significant changes with the integration of of some therapies that have been used in other parts of the world and in other applications for hundreds of years, including what we call anecdotally or casually, candidly, shrooms. You can let us know how this conversation is resonating with you. We've, we've been keeping Ray Elisa Schmidt uh, Teigen waiting from Damascus for like 20 minutes here. This was a bit of an impromptu conversation, but yeah. we saw this myth busting done. I want to give credit to Moira Whiten, who did the reporting for the Taiyi, and we're going to try to get her on the show in the next couple of days to get into this story, but we did want to touch on that, especially because I had tweeted the link out, and I wanted to be responsible with mm-hmm. that when we find out you know more facts on a story. Uh, we'll go live to Syria in just a moment. These conversations are presented by sponsors like the team at California Closets, who wants to remind you that while their name implies that they're phenomenal at closets, and they are, trust us, we've used them. We hired them a number of years ago. They totally changed the game for us in our home, in the master bedroom, and down in the main family room area. They're also big into garages. Yeah, that's right. You turn your garage into something more than just that dumping ground for shovels and rakes. You can make it one of the featured jewels, the crown jewels of your biggest investment, your home. A consultation with California Closets can open doors you never knew existed with design ideas and applications to absolutely fit your custom needs. You can call them for a free consultation at 780-469-1777 or check out californiaclosets.ca. If you're in a bit of a different circumstance, if the construction that you're thinking about right now is, is well, disaster restoration, if maybe spring is going to wind up bringing a flood to your area, heaven forbid, or if you ever experience a house fire and now you're looking to rebuild, we recommend wholeheartedly the team at Complete Care Restoration. Now, this is the team that we worked with to get this studio in this 110-year-old building exactly the way we needed it. Dialed in, buckled up, no water leaks, perfectly built out. The team at Complete Care Restoration delivered. If 
Heaven forbid you experience a disaster. You tell your insurance company you want to hire Complete Care Restoration. And while you're at it, if you are rebuilding, a lot of people are going solar this summer, whether it's on your heritage home or your brand new build. Chances are if it's in Western Canada, it's going to be installed by Kubi Renewable Energy. One in five solar projects in Western Canada engineered and installed by these guys, providing solar energy solutions to power your life. You've still got a chance. Check out their blog link at kubienergy.ca. A chance to qualify for that 0% 10-year loan from the feds. That's right, up to 40000 bucks if you need it. It's the Canada Greener Homes Loan. Best part about it? Kubi Renewable Energy will do all your paperwork. And once you've got solar on your roof, then you're going to want to start looking at, well, basically your entire utilities landscape. Our friends at Park Power want to remind you about a great solar program that they have. You can check it out online at parkpower.ca. Join their solar club. If you've got solar on your property, Park Power's solar club rates can help you earn more value from the electricity that you're producing. Plus, one of the things we love about Park Power, the Community Partner Program. 10% of their profits on electricity are shared with deserving charities. What other utility company is doing that? The answer is none of them. It's why we're proud as a family to do business with Park Power. I recommend you check out their rates at parkpower.ca. Use the promo code REALTALK23 to save 50 bucks per utility off your first bill from Park Power. Oh. We'll just let the studio band finish up here. Means it's going to be a good show when you hit the post. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, our next guest is doing unbelievable work. Uh, the toll I would imagine that it takes on her personally and on her team of professionals with MedAir. I'm sure she'll be able to find the words, but it's unimaginable circumstance following uh, massive quakes, as you know, of course, in Turkey and Syria, volunteers on the ground, in particular, in this conversation on the Syrian side, doing everything they can to help a population of devastated people. Here's a video to tee this up. Uh, some people saying that uh, there are still some families on the ground. They're trying to search right now for them, but uh, they don't know they are still alive. As we seek to respond to this earthquake, we're really thinking about all those people who are right now still caught underneath the rubble, who have uh, lost their loved ones, who are even still searching for their loved ones and not sure whether they're still alive. Uh, we're conscious of uh, those who have found their loved ones who are wounded, but they're not able to get to healthcare services because they're so overrun. So this is the hospital, but because of the damage, they they closed it now. In, in this situation, the most important is putting running health facilities, and, and normally the health facilities are in not in good shape. As in in the water side, normally. The, all the big pipelines are destroyed. So, yeah, we've got to concentrate on what's going to keep people alive in the next two or three weeks. We've heard of people who've had to spend the night in their cars or even outside in a blizzard uh, because of not trusting the buildings or having anywhere to go. And so we, we're just so conscious of the immense level of need right now on the ground um, that real people like you and me are facing and we are wanting to really be able to come alongside them to help them in this time of immense need. Um, we're so thankful that our own teams uh, are okay. 
um, that they were not impacted themselves and that they're able to respond at this time uh, within Syria. Um, and they are seeking to get their responses going in Aleppo. So it's not only distribution, we need to take into consideration protection principles, uh, privacy issues, all of these will inform us on how to design uh, our response. We really hope to be able to, um, to scale up there quickly and we desire as an organization to be going to those places that are the hardest to reach and in this case there are places that are incredibly difficult to reach at the moment. The roads have been impacted, the airstrips have been impacted, the communication networks are down, it's even difficult to get a good understanding of the extent of the impact and damage caused by these horrendous earthquakes. It's a video produced by the team at Med Air. Ray Elisa schmidt Teigen is one of those team members uh, born in Pakistan and raised in Calgary. Uh, she's been working internationally in the humanitarian field for more than 15 years in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Haiti, the Philippines, Iraq, Bangladesh, and most recently Syria. She's been in the Middle East since 2015, working in Iraq and Syria. She's joining us live from Damascus, uh, where she now lives and works. Thank you for making time for us, my friend. It's wonderful to see your face again. But uh, the context of this conversation is absolutely gut-wrenching. Uh, what do you see all around you right now? Well, I'm actually in Damascus, but I'm getting, because um, I have a lot of kind of donor meetings and things like that, that were a lot of coordination stuff happening amongst various actors and with the UN. Um, but my team in Aleppo is sending regular updates um, and pictures and yeah, it's just, it's horrendous what has happened um, It to a very fragile economy already. It, yeah, there's just, city of Aleppo was already quite um, destroyed from the siege of 2016 when it was taken over by the government. Um, and so now it's just been multiplied multiplied um yeah it's there's no words for it yeah, we'll have a lot of people listening to this on the podcast. I think most people are probably, if they pay attention to the international news cycle, they're they're envisioning some of the devastation they've seen. But for people that are watching this on YouTube, we do encourage that. We appreciate the images. What we're seeing here, the video, the photos, these are, are, are images that you have shared with us. These are from your team members. Uh, yeah. When we reached out to you following the earthquake, you, you, you responded to me quickly, which I was grateful for. Uh, a bit of a relief, not to not to make light of everything else. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine the devastation here, but you described it as crisis- on top of a crisis and uh i just i don't even know where you start to describe uh, the impact that this has had on this part of the world yeah it really is so syria pre-earthquake um there was already over the people in need the number of people in need was climbing so there was already over 15 million people in need in syria pre-earthquake 90% of the population of Syria was living under the poverty line. So that was making around $65 a month um, for a family. So already there is a massive crisis happening. Um, there is little electricity in most locations. Um, fuel was non like very hard to procure in any way. Um, just a complete economic collapse happening. Um, and so that, that was the crisis that was already happening. And then on top of that, then you get millions of people that are impacted by an earthquake that is the largest that it's, that, that was 
I think the last largest earthquake like this was well over 80 years ago in this region. Um, so it is utterly devastating uh, for thousands of people. And not only then is there this element of people having lost their homes, there is an element of complete and utter fear. And so people aren't even going into their homes because they're so afraid. Are you, are you talking about fear of actual physical collapse or, yeah. or is there yeah. sort of a multi-layered impact there? Yeah. Yeah. Fear of physical collapse. Yeah. These, these, these numbers following this February 6th quake, 7.8 magnitude tremor, subsequent quakes and aftershocks uh, in Turkey, um, at least and these numbers uh, in, in, in a heartbreaking context are, are changing uh, quickly in, in the worst way. But but the, the U.N.'s latest death toll, this was updated uh, 14 hours ago, uh, 46,000 people, 45,968 yeah. people in Turkey killed. Like, try to wrap yeah. your mind around that. Um, a, a medium-sized town in Alberta, that would be about 6,000 people in Syria, um, which is, uh, you know, more than 9,000 injured as well just in northwest Syria. Your team, I'm curious to know the, the dynamic of that. And th there's been a lot of criticism uh, for how long it took the U.N. To, to get over the border into Syria. And you obviously can maybe bring us up to speed on the dynamic there with the opposition held northwest, but they needed more border crossings open, and it took at least mm -hmm. a week uh, for the U.N. to mm -hmm. get approval from Syria's president. What did that do, I mean, aside from the obvious, to rescue and recovery efforts? How was your team able to mm -hmm. step in? What was the impact of that delay? So the impact of the delay is fairly significant. I mean, and the government has responded far quicker uh, than it normally has. Um, mm -hmm. So there are there has been positive movement forward for sure. Um, but the impact of the delay is that, especially for Northwest Syria and then in the opposition held area um, in the non-government area, they <laughs> they did not have the search and rescue ability that was being given to Turkey. So Turkey has infrastructure that exists and they have a relatively strong um, economy. And, and so they were able to respond quite quickly um, with search and rescue teams. But getting search and rescue teams into Northwest Syria was very difficult. And yeah, and the government has opened up cross line into Northwest Syria. So the UN is working on being able to get aid into into the non-government areas and they've opened up the border crossings. But there is just so much bureaucracy and delay around things and approvals and getting the right thing to the right place at the right time um, that has really impacted thousands of lives. Right, Lisa, you've seen some, uh, obviously, uh, your career, is, as we introduced you, 15 years in humanitarian aid, and you've seen a lot. And I, I, uh, I certainly don't take that for granted as, as someone who has the honor of interviewing you and, and, and trying to uh, respect uh, some of the experiences that the average citizen, somebody like me, living in comfort in a relatively stable part of the world, uh, would, have, would have really no understanding of. Um, is there something that sets this crisis apart from others that you've seen? Is there something that's presenting unique challenges to you and your team that that maybe is 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 taking a toll in, in, in otherwise difficult years that that you didn't see? I think I was talking with some other colleagues from other organizations recently, and and we were talking about whether or not we like to do emergency response, and. Um, I said, actually, I 
I don't know if it's bad to say this, but actually quite enjoy emergency response. I enjoy the fast paced environment. I enjoy making quick decisions. I enjoy getting in and providing immediate assistance to people. Um, but this has been a harder response than I've ever had to deal with um, because of the delays, because of the approvals that you have to get, the facilitation that has to be done, the constant negotiation to be able to get to anywhere. Um, it where like when I responded in Haiti, our team there, and I was in a different role then, but even then our team there was able to respond very quickly because there's very little, uh, very little few approvals that we had to get. Um, whereas here it's just been really challenging um, bureaucratically um, to be able to respond. I think the government has moved, as I said, much faster than it has before. And it has provided access much quick, quicker than it has before. Um, and I do believe that they really desire to help and to aid, get aid to their people. Um, and they acknowledge that they need help. Um, they do not have the capacity to be able to respond to a crisis this massive. Um, but I think that's what's been challenging is I think mentally and emotionally for me too, is just this realization of how long it's taken. Um, yeah. Has this, uh, how, how would you gauge Canada's response to this? We've got people asking that they're seeing a lot of news headlines about uh, Canada's aid going to Turkey, uh, but people are saying they haven't seen a lot of stories of aid going to Syria. Can you compare the two? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, we were, I was just in a donor meeting in Beirut uh, where a guy from the Canadian embassy came. Um, lovely guy, no complaints there, but who's <laughs> very kind. But and he said he was talking about what's been raised for the earthquake and that there was a matching program that the government did to raise money for the earthquake. But then he tied it up by saying our stance on the regime hasn't changed. Um, so because of Canada's political stance on Syrian Syria, um, and especially on the government held area, I don't think we'll see any Canadian money. Is this something that you've had to navigate in past? I mean, it's, you know, people will say, I, I don't even want to make comparisons. You start comparing international <laughs> circumstances, it's a fool's errand. But I, you know, I, yeah. I, I, can, I, I can think of people saying like, you know, in, okay, now, well, I'll do it. But my friends are say, well, just spit it out. But I'm going, okay, so, uh, you know, like, you know, in the Olympics and people will say, well, look what Putin's doing. And like, you know, so Russia should be, should be banned from the Olympics. And then you get that argument from people that say, well, it has nothing to do with the athletes. Putin has nothing to do with mm -hmm. the athletes. Why punish the athletes? In a much more, much more serious context with much higher mm -hmm. stakes, let me be clear people will say well the average syrian person has nothing to do with their government or their government's policies or behaviors and this appears to be canada's and again i'm oversimplifying uh, foreign affairs and i'm oversimplifying international diplomacy and all of the things that need to be considered but but people will say this the average syrian person will suffer here from canada's mm -hmm. position on the regime how, how do you sort that out i mean you're right there yeah, it's a constant battle. It's something that we're constantly advocating about is, um, yeah, I sit on a steering committee for Damascus INGOs that, that we represent the Damascus INGOs. Um, and one of the things that we advocate regularly with donor governments on is the politicization of aid 
and how aid has become very political. So based on what the Syrian government is doing and other and other governments perspectives on what they're doing here, um, which isn't wrong per se, but the reality is sanctions and what they're doing politically are impacting the everyday Syrian. And they are the ones that are paying that price. So Canada's stance on Syria and on the regime um, isn't helpful to the average citizen who is starving or trying to figure out how they're possibly going to rebuild their house on $65 a month. It just, <laughs> the politicization of aid is, has become insane, for lack of a better term. I It makes me blood boilingly angry to watch people who desperately need assistance not be able to get it. And then because of a stance that a government has. People are going to be listening to this. They're going to be watching this. And of course, they're going to want to know how they can help. That's how we're wired as humans is we want to know what we can do. Uh, people can start by checking out medair.org. That's M-E-D-A-I-R.org. If someone right now, let's say, was was able to make a donation, can you give us a sense of, of what that might help uh, your team do? Yeah. Can you give us a sense of, of the resources sure. that you require and exactly what you're working on like as we speak? Yep. So as we speak, we are providing uh, safe water to families, um, either in collective shelters, and that is provided by water trucking. So we test the water and make sure it's okay. And we provide it with water trucking to places that have the ability to store water. So these are collective shelters where there's anywhere between 20 to 100 families all crammed into a collective shelter with no um, ability to access safe water or uh, no privacy, things like that. We are also uh, preparing for our first distribution tomorrow that we'll be providing mattresses, blankets, um, tarps, uh, plastic sheeting for to be able to create privacy between families. Um, provide jerry cans to be able to have some water storage with them yeah so those are the kind of immediate response things that we're looking at um that we we've already started and then we are starting to take a look at as well um we one of medair's uh strongest sectors is health and we we uh, are supporting clinics that are responding to people in the crisis and so we're supporting them with providing consumables and some medications for non-communicable diseases because people lost their medications also. Um, so we're working on that as well as trying to look at um, how can we start to repair some of the water networks so that people can get back into their homes. Because part of the problem of people being out of their homes is um, the building may be considered safe, but now the there's a maybe a small break in the water network or the water pipeline where they can access water. So uh, starting to look at some of the more, um, yeah, we have immediate need, then kind of medium, um, medium and long term. So starting to look at what can we do in the medium? Um, is there water rehabilitation, wash, uh, water station rehabilitation that we can start to look at, water network rehabilitation? And then long term, we're looking at um, it's good. It's a this, this response will be years because people need homes to get back to. 
they need um, homes that can be safe mm. and rebuilt properly. Um, so, yeah. And then we have things like elevated water tanks in villages. So a community water tank that is elevated that lasted the entire crisis for 13 years comes crashing down um, in the earthquake. So that community has no water at all. Um, so rebuilding water tanks and things like that are all things that we're considering for the response. But right now it's also immediate need assistance. I think that this came up last time you and I spoke. Um, I know somebody pointed this, you know, numbers are powerful, obviously. And somebody pointed out to me that several years ago, but not too long ago, several years ago, Syria accepted more migrants. Mm -hmm. Syria accepted mm -hmm. more refugees than any other country in the region. And yeah. if, if you look at this uh, turnaround in the most devastating way, this reversal of fortunes, if you want to call it that, yeah. uh, I, I mean, how do you even put it into perspective? Like Syria for, for many, 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 many years, there's just this beautiful um, and I'm not and, and I mean, we, we're seeing examples. One of the videos that you shared with us from Medair, one of one of the workers is looking at this little girl and says she's still smiling. And I don't know how uh, people have credited the Syrian people for like just this incredible spirit, which is it's not to take away from what they're enduring right now. Uh, but what a dramatic uh, reversal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really dramatic. Syria pre-crisis was just a beautiful country. Mm -hmm. It was just. Yeah. And people like um, people who were here before the crisis, ex, um, expats and stuff, will have told me Syrians were the kindest, most beautiful people that they'd ever met. Um, and they still are. But there's this level of trauma and um, I think distrust now as well um, that is really had a had an impact on the nation's psyche, but also on each person. And I think when I look at my staff responding, like some of my staff that are responding in Aleppo, they are from Aleppo. And one of them, his family was sleeping in a car for several weeks after. Um, and another one of the other ones are monitoring an evaluation officer. She just she just walks around and weeps because, which I mean, she as she does her job and is engaging with people and talking to people, she you just see tears in her eyes because she's just so impacted by the horror of what's happened to a city that she dearly loves. Hmm. And it's not just Aleppo; it's like um, other places that we're looking at responding in Idlib and Hama and Latakia on the coast. Um, it's it's just so. <laughs> and then now displaced people, like there's over 300,000 displaced people that are moving from Aleppo, trying to go south as much as possible. Um, so right now we're looking at internally displaced people of over 300,000, which was the last UN report that I got today. So like like a third people, of the size of Edmonton, you know, yeah. like like three red deers of people more yeah. than that. I, the, the numbers are I'm, like I tried. I tried it when I when we talk about these things, you try to like 50,000 more than 50,000 people killed in this quake. Like you can't yeah. even, you know, like it, it, it's unimaginable, you know, 29 yeah. I don't know if we need to start comparing them to things, but like I, I just I, I can't even imagine. May I ask a, like just a personal question of, of mm -hmm. like how how you're doing? Um, 
if if I know anything, and we've gotten to know each other a little bit, I know that you're probably sleeping three hours a night, and and I know that you're obviously you you pour everything that you have into what you do, Riley. So can can you give us? Can I ask you how you're doing personally? Yeah, yeah, you can. Um, I'm doing okay. Lots of crying, lots yeah. of tears. <laughs> yeah. um, I am sleeping longer than three hours a night because I know I do not function well if I don't. But yeah, um, yeah I think it's triggered some anxiety in me, not because of, um, not because I'm scared of the earthquake or anything like that. It's more just this country, I think. Yeah. Will break your heart. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had like literally maybe two, maybe a week after the crisis, after the earthquake, um, Israel missile attacked a neighborhood about 10 kilometers away from us. And then we just got word today that this morning they um, bombed up Aleppo airport that's now closed. So just like, I, I, I can't put into words how I felt when I read that they had done that this morning in Aleppo in a city that has just suffered an earthquake. Like you're seriously, I, I don't get it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. I, I appreciate you taking the question. And uh, I want to thank you for like, for a lot of us, like in, in our most comfortable, like, like, honestly, I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to be funny. Like, you know, my biggest problem this morning was that my seat heaters aren't working in my car, you know, like for a perspective check. Um, and uh, we need to hear this. And uh, I just, you know, like from, from the moment that we first started, you people know, like you're a real talker first. You started emailing our show and you started sharing your stories and your observations. And and, uh, and you and I have kind of forged this friendship. And I'm just so grateful um, for for your ability to put this into words and to help us understand the human toll that this takes and, and also just have a world of respect for what you and your team at MedAir are doing. And if I know anything about this audience, it's the most engaged talk audience in the country. They're going to want to do what they can to help. And so, again, we want to direct them to medair.org. We'll have the link in our show notes uh, on our YouTube channel as well as on the podcast, and, and people can learn more about what MedAir is all about. And um, if they're able, make a donation you know, we talked to uh, independent journalist. She's a freelancer. Sarah Lorinyak uh, joined us just last week. Um, she had just returned to London, England, where she's living right now. She's been reporting from. I you. was just listening to that. Oh, one. did you hear yeah. it? I mean, amazing yeah. storyteller, and, and yeah. she she was. I, I was glad she made the point, and you make the point as well about trauma. And it's important, you know. We we sort of go, all oh, these Syrian people, despite it all, they just they're, they're the most kind and wonderful people, and the smiles on their faces. And I sort of said that to her too. That the, the you know the resilience of the Ukrainian people, and this that, and she and she made a good point. People should listen to that interview if they hadn't heard it. She says, yeah, but like. There's a lot of trauma and, you know, it's it's not that the smiles or the joy or the resilience or the silver linings type perspective isn't valid, but um, yeah. the toll that, that conflict takes in the Ukrainian context and, of course, what we're talking about here in Syria and Turkey, for that matter, um, you know, it would take years, if if not generations, to, to reverse the toll that something like this can take. Yeah, and I think it, like, what... Part of what breaks my heart when I think about the trauma aspect of it is I think as adults, we experience trauma and yes, it changes us and it, it impacts us. But for children, like it literally changes your brain architecture yeah. and the, the 
mental impact of trauma that has been happening in this country for over a decade and then on top and this on top of this I just for children it just I just can't get my head around it Ryan Lisa Schmidt Teigen honored to call you a friend um uh and 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 a real talker for that matter and um really really appreciate you making yourself available uh it's it's obviously getting later into the evening over there in damascus and, <laughs> yeah. and it, i know it's been a long day for you so we appreciate it medair.org is where people can can channel some of what they're feeling right now to support you and your colleagues thanks for talking to us thank you ryan so much yeah you got it raya lisa schmidt teigen unbelievable we got so much i mean this is like as gets north me, americans it gets we, me angry and sad at the same time yeah. listening to that it's just yeah Especially when your guest says, you know, oh God, I'm getting emotional right now. But yeah. just it's disappointing when you hear our government and our prime minister talking about. And I don't want to glaze over the fact that Canadians uh, <clears throat> that they announced that they're going to match those ten million dollar donations from Canadians uh, to responses to these earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. But it's uh, I don't want to say it's almost irresponsible when. You bring in this moot subject of like, well, we still haven't changed our position on the government in Syria. Like, yeah. Like, and th- do you think children also, born in that country like that's have thing. a choice? It's just, yeah, like, it gets, gets me really mad. Yeah, I yeah. can hear in your voice, man. You got the biggest heart. <laughs> I'm surprised you can fit in that shirt. Yeah. Um, I'm glad she made the point about the kids, you know, because and, and again, you know, people will say, like, if we had a political analyst on right now, a political scientist or somebody that's worked as a deputy minister in government or foreign affairs, they would say, well, guys, it's not that simple. And sanctions need to mean something to to, you know, to actually have an impact and yada, yada, yada. And and it's just like it's this harsh, cruel, unfair world that we live in. Yeah. And um, and that's not to absolve Canadians of responsibility. And it's not to say, listen, like if, if you're quite frankly hurting or pissed off from what you just heard, there is something you can do. And that's to support that organization or, or other organizations in the area, you know, depending on, on how you feel compelled. We always want to hear your perspectives. We want to know how an interview has landed with you. You can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You can also hit us up on our hashtag RealTalkRJ on Twitter. We're also on TikTok and Instagram if you'd like to interact with the show. We're going to get to some federal politics in just a second. Pierre Polyev, conservative leader, opposition leader, says there will be no consequences. He's not removing three of his uh, caucus members is MPs who recently met with a, a far right German politician. We're going to get to that quote. And I want to ask you if you think that Mr. Polyev's comparison, you could probably see it coming from a mile away, uh, has to do with costumes at a party. Uh, if his comparison holds water, if it's a fair point, or if it's maybe a bit of a red herring, a bit of a distraction, a bit of a smoke screen. We'll get to that in just a second. These conversations happen because of sponsors like Apex Automation. You can find them online at apexautomation.ca. If you're a technician, an aspiring engineer, a professional engineer for that matter, looking for a, a change of pace, a new opportunity, if you're looking to provide quality service for clients and you value culture for your team over profit, you're going to want to check out Apex Automation. I mean, what sets them apart, this team that's always hiring? 
Well, they've invested in labs in their office, as an example. You're seeing them right here so they can test all their software, all their hardware before it's deployed to client sites. That minimizes errors and costly delays. They're saving their clients money. They'll bring the clients into the office for, for multiple days to sort through the testing, to train everybody up before they install new software on site. They've even invested in building a shop for their team to stage hardware like robotics and electrical panels. I've seen it myself. It's fascinating. So they can test or play with equipment and simulate real world results. This gives you confidence in the custom solutions that are designed, built, and installed by the team at Apex Automation. Uh, from job sites to your own backyard, the team at Eden Landscaping wants to remind you that now is the time of year where you're going to want to reach out to them via their website, landscapeedmonton.ca. If you're hoping to have your outdoor space brought to life in time to entertain this summer, a space that's flexible as your life is and a space that can evolve with your needs. They can work with your budgets. I can tell you firsthand because we are literally working with Eden Landscaping right now. Your yards don't have to necessarily be completed all at once. If you've put away a nice little nest egg or your line of credit can absorb a, a little bit, but you're not going to go in at 300 grand. Mike and his team can work with that. It requires planning. You want to look forward if you want to add to the project in future years. They've seen it all over their 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. You can visit Eden Landscaping online. Check out their portfolio today at landscapeedmonton.ca. At Friesen Brothers, they're always coming up with cool stuff for you to keep an eye on. And you can view their weekly flyer online at Friesen.com. They're in 16 different Alberta communities. And of course, they know that so much quality time happens around quality food, around the family dinner table. Why not check out Friesen Brothers Hot Cross Buns? They're back, available up until Easter, baked fresh daily by real sourdough bakers with 100% Alberta flour and, of course, a little bit of Charlie. That's the mother dough, the sourdough starter at Friesen Brothers. You can learn more about everything we're talking about on their website at Friesen.com. Well, this is a story that's had Canadians talking uh, over the past week or so. At least three conservative MPs met with a far-right German politician. We're talking about Christine Anderson, uh, a member of the European Parliament representing the Alternative for Germany party. Uh, the MPs in question, Dr. Leslin Lewis, Dean Allison, and Colin Carey, Ontario MPs. There have been calls for the conservative leader for Pierre Poliev to boot these three from caucus. In other words, to force them to sit as independents across the floor. But nobody would take them on with this context, to be honest. But he says it's not going to happen. Now, who is this Christine Anderson? I know that some people are saying, well, what's far right anyway? What are we talking about far right uh, this is a German politician who's accused of, of downplaying Nazi crimes during World War II. She opposes immigration, and she's pushed anti-Muslim and anti-LGBTQ ideology. As a matter of fact, when Pierre Polyev was asked to go on the record about her visit to Canada, this cross-country tour that included, by the way, an appearance and event at Calgary's Petroleum Club, who apparently will host anybody for money, uh, Pierre Polyev called her views vile and racist. 
So you have to wonder why he would allow these three MPs to continue to sit on the conservative benches. What message does that send to Canadians? Pierre Polyev in front of microphones again just a few hours ago, and here's what he had to say. Well, I think right now what I'm more concerned about is the vile and racist views of the Prime Minister, who after over half of, if I could, if I, if I could over, over half of his adult life, dressed up in vile, racist costumes so many times that he cannot remember them all. I mean, you should be asking him, how many times did he dress up in these costumes? How many other times? How many other times are there that we don't know about? And furthermore, furthermore, we're also speaking out against the government giving tax dollars to vile, anti-Semitic racists uh, that are spreading hatred across our country at the same time, at the same time, at the same time as the, the, supposedly the program is supposed to fight racism. So, thank you. Their views are anti-Semitic, though, so I mean, how are Canadians supposed to believe that those MPs didn't, or that visited Ms. Anderson, didn't know what her views were, and do you have any plans to remove them from caucus? No. Anybody buying this? I mean, do we have to compare circumstances every single time and, and find out which one is worse before we address something in meaningful fashion? Uh, Canadians have had at least two federal elections to rule on the prime minister's blackface. The prime minister's history of blackface is obviously a total disaster. It is arguably his Achilles heel, except for the fact that he's managed to win a couple of elections since that story surfaced. Whoever thought that that would be possible. So you might think that Mr. Polyev's senior advisors would have something to say against comparing Ms. Anderson's views to the prime minister dressing up in party costumes. What the politicians want you to do is to be in a position where you have to condone or even defend one thing in order to argue against or rule on another. And I would think that the average Canadian would refuse to do so. Justin Trudeau's history of blackface is an embarrassment to himself and to his party. It's obviously completely unacceptable, but it has nothing to do with conservative MPs and other power players sitting down with and whining and dining a far-right ideologue out of Germany that's called for a clampdown on immigration, that's spoken and espoused anti-Muslim views, and that has questioned Nazi war crimes. Not even in the same ballpark. But I don't want to play these games. I don't want to start to have to compare the two before I can decide what's unacceptable and what's not. Hey, here's a newsflash. Maybe both situations are unacceptable. My hope is, is that the Conservative Party of Canada, under the leadership of Pierre Poliev, will recognize what Canadians are asking for en masse. And that is a credible, reputable, integrity-driven, vision-presenting Conservative Party that can give Canadians across the country confidence that a vote for that party would not include a pass for people who are looking to rub shoulders with problematic politicians like Christine Anderson. That's my two cents. What's yours? Let us know at talk at ryanjesperson.com. This feels like perfect fodder. This feels like perfect fodder 
for a trash talk coming up on Friday. Interesting comment here in the live chat. We wouldn't have a live chat if we didn't want your comments. Uh, Alyssa is wondering why I'm even talking about this. She says I'm just rage farming. It's fascinating because we had people coming at us yesterday for not talking about it. The perspective of this show has always been if an issue matters, if an issue is relevant, we'll hit it head on and gauge where people are at. Of course, you always have the right to hit skip or to get you, go check out other episodes of Real Talk on our YouTube or podcast archive. The Trash Talk is presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. Every Friday, we read real emails from those of you that have taken the time to, well, get a little something off your chest. At Local Environmental, they value keeping it local. And that includes a promise to do better in communities like Edmonton and area, White Court and area, Regina and area. You can check out everything that they're doing online at localenvironmental.ca, including their story. How did this company come around, uh, bringing great service into communities that they serve with local ownership? I mean, people raising their families in markets that the company serves. This is a company that has been growing and growing and growing. A true success story with a ton of opportunities to elevate the service with your business or your entire community. You can check them out online at localenvironmental.ca. Hey, speaking of family-owned businesses, we'd be remiss if we didn't give a big shout-out to the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They want us to remind you that for a limited time, you can get your hands on a four-piece crispy chicken strip and fry rings basket. The best part about this, you don't have to choose between their crisp fries and those beautiful onion rings. They're even going to throw in a delicious ranch dipping sauce. DQ chicken strips are totally different than the competing ones. Why? Because DQ gives you 100% seasoned all tenderloin chicken. The other guys can't say that. You can get your hands on a chicken strips and fry rings basket at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Coming up on tomorrow's Real Talk, it's International Women's Day. And that means, as a matter of fact, that we're going to take our Friday tradition of the Real Talk Roundtable and we're going to move it to Wednesday. As a matter of fact, we're going to give you back-to-back roundtables presented by Urban Timber, two very different perspectives as we celebrate and recognize International Women's Day right here on Real Talk. That's coming up tomorrow. We hope you'll join us. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive Producer, Josh Dunford. Technical Producer, John Hicks. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project.
For more, check out ryanjasperson.com. 